If you're, if you're thinking it's too early for me to be up, just because I have so much to say, buckle up. <laughs> we just decided actually re- reverse a little bit uh, today some of the practice uh, and norms of our practice um, to give us a chance <clears throat> to worship a little longer at the end of the service today. <clears throat> We've been talking about sort of the foundations, those most important stones, the, the ones that hold up the building, the foundations of our faith, the foundations of understanding in terms of what it means to be a follower of God. And in a place like Grace Point where we talk about that, we talk about grace a lot, the impact of such an understanding on the whole of our faith and on our walk. And so as we do that, I want to take a minute to remind you of a couple of those. We've talked about the fact that God does not do prescriptive law. Prescriptive law is simply a law that describes, that, that prescribes a certain behavior. Hence the word prescriptive. It prescribes a certain behavior. The example that I gave you was a stop sign. A stop sign says you are supposed to stop. How often do you have to do it when you come to that sign? Every time. So the, the prescription of that law is to stop when you come to that intersection. Get it? Prescriptive law doesn't necessarily have to have an outcome of normative, normative outcome if you break it. You can drive through that stop sign. If there is no policeman and no one else in the intersection, will you suffer any consequences? Maybe a slightly guilty conscience. But you won't actually be harmed. Does that make sense? That's how prescriptive laws work. They're prescribing a behavior whose outcome may or may not cause punishment. Got it? God's laws are all descriptive. They are describing what is true. Does that make sense? They are simply describing what is true. And the illustration I gave you is the law of gravity. Did Newton make gravity? No. He simply described what he saw already around him. Now, can you break the law of gravity? No, you cannot. No. You can defy the law of gravity. But you can't break the law of gravity. You can find ways through effort and energy to fly. But what happens when the plane runs out of fuel? Gravity takes over. Right? You can defy it and you can actually do things to to work with it to seem to disobey. But in reality, gravity always wins. What is the punishment built in to gravity? The landing. If you decide to break the law of gravity, if you decide that that this is your day to defy gravity, you climb up on the top of this building, it's approximately 24 feet at the peak, and you jump off, you will accelerate toward the ground, not toward the heavens. And then you will come to a very quick and abrupt halt. Therein, the punishment will be applied. You cannot break 
a descriptive law. A descriptive law simply exists to explain where you live. Get it? Good. God does not do prescriptive. He does descriptive. If you can get that one bit clear, when you're reading through the text and it talks about about the law, the outcomes of the law, wrath, judgment, and those sorts of things, if you simply recognize it as, oh, I get it, he's describing what happens in the world I live in. Once that's clear, a lot of the other questions go away. What I love about this is that there are laws God placed in front of us that appear to be defiable. The outcomes are not as clear as breaking one of the laws of physics. But if you spend time next to God, you find both the benefits and the curses of attempting to break them. You can lie and get away with it. Kind of. If ever somebody finds out that you've been lying to them, the curse is built in. Trust goes away. Do you get the picture? Once you start lying, you typically have to continue to multiply those things to cover the ones that you left behind. It becomes a massive disruption to your life. And so you know what God said? Hey, lying, bad. Telling the truth, good. Tell truth. Pretty simple, really. I'd like you to have the best possible life in the place where you live. Follow the rules of that place. It'll go better. Simply enough. It's what God's been telling and what God's been doing. Today, I'm adding another layer onto this discussion. And that is simply this. That the problem of sin has always been personal with God. He's never separated himself from him. It's never been something he stands back and just objectively looks at and says, well, not my problem. It's always been personal. The relationship between God and man has always been intensely personal. It has always been that God has been passionate about you. I'm going to say it again because you need to get amen all the way to the back. It has always been true that God has been passionate about you. No matter what your state, no matter how good you've been behaving or bad you've been behaving, doesn't change the fact that God is passionate about you. Think about your children, those of you who have children. Do you stop loving them when they behave badly? Are you still passionate about them when they behave badly? Yes, of course you are. They own a piece of your heart. That's how God feels in, about his relationship with you. It's always been personal with God. It starts out with this very vivid, beautiful, very personal, intimate description when man is created. It simply says this, God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Very intimate, very personal contact. Everything else God creates by fiat. He simply says, let there be and there was. But when it came to forming the human species, 
He didn't just say, let there be a person. Instead, he formed. He got in there and formed with his own hands. He became engaged in the forming of the human being with his own physical hands. As he did that and found the person then lying there inanimate on the ground, he bent over, knelt, and breathed into him the breath of life. And at that point, under the intimate contact of a personal God, man became a living being. It's always been personal with God. The relationship between man and God has always been connected, passionate, personal, and intimate. Connected, passionate, personal, and intimate. The relationship between man and God has always been those things. It has always been those things. That includes you. That includes you. So when sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, distrusting God, standing there at the tree, he told them not to approach, eating the fruit he told them not to eat, talking to the snake, who he'd probably warned them about as well, believed this serpent instead of believing God, breaking the relationship, breaking the trust between themselves and God. And when they did that, God showed up. End of the day, as he had apparently been doing all the time, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You ever wonder what sound that was? Does God whistle while he walks? You know, I can walk across the grass pretty quietly. I have no professional training. It just works that way. Does God walk with a certain level of, I mean, are God's footfalls heavy and, and, and are they like drum beats on the earth? Does the earth echo when God walks on it? It's like, (laughs) 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 Adam and Eve were like, here comes God. Quick hide. When they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And it was personal to God. Because they were hiding from God. It was a personal thing. Their relationship had been intimate and connected and passionate and personal. And now God's, and now they're hiding from Him. And God calls out for them, Adam, where are you? Over here? And then we see the result of the descriptive law of God. Don't break the covenant that connects us because when you do, we'll be separated. And you'll feel fear when I come walking in the garden. And you'll feel shame for what you have done. And you'll be angry with each other. And you'll start blaming. Don't break the covenant relationship that keeps the intimate connection between us. Because when you do, we'll be separated. It's always been personal with God. It's still personal with God. When God was trying to raise up the nation 
a nation of people who would be his followers, a nation of people who would would represent him. He said, let them build me a sanctuary. Why? So that I might what? Dwell among them. Let them build me a sanctuary. Let, Let them build me a place where I can be so that I can be right there with them. Why? Because it's personal with God. He wants to be in in personal contact. He can't be because of the separation caused by sin, but he wants to be as close as it is safe for him to be in their lives. He wants to be personal with that relationship with the nation. He wants to be right there in the middle of them. Remember, they set this sanctuary up right in the middle of the camp, and all of those, those tribes go out like spokes from that place. Central to all that is going on in the camp of Israel as they march across the desert is God who dwells in the middle of them. I want to dwell right in the middle of them. I want to be right in the center of their lives. I want to be the hub upon which everything else spins. I want this relationship to be as close, as connected, as passionate, and as intimate as it possibly can be given the separation caused by sin. I'll I'll take a box. I will put my presence in a box so that we can be close. I will will reduce myself to a little bright light hidden in back of of a tent surrounded on all four sides with heavy curtains so nothing breaks out so that we can be as close together as possible. I'll do that because it's personal. It's personal. God gave them certain symbols, and we won't go through a bunch of them. I just want to go through one. He said every morning and every evening you're to light a sacrifice. You're to put a sacrifice on the altar that's outside, not back inside the tent, but the one that's right out in front, out in the courtyard. There's a giant altar. It's raised up high. You're to go there every morning and you're to put an altar, a sacrifice on that altar. And as you lay that lamb on the altar and it begins to burn and it rises, that that smoke rises up every day, that daily morning sacrifice. And then you're supposed to come in the evening after all that has gone on through that day and you're supposed to lay another sacrifice sacrifice on that altar and that's supposed to be right there out in front of them that burns all night and the smoke will rise up through the night why because i want my people to understand this will be a continual burnt offering this is the eternal flame of the relationship with god this will be a continual offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the lord where i will meet you to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my presence. I will dwell among the children of Israel. I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God. It's personal contact. This daily sacrifice, the smoke rising up from the altar, they rise up in the morning when they get up from their, from their bed and they go outside, they step outside their tent, there's smoke rising from the altar. Why? Because that smoke says, hey, I'm still here. You may have wandered off yesterday, but I haven't moved. You may be thinking about things other than me, but I haven't left you. You may have gone wild and crazy and done something completely stupid yesterday, but I'm still here this morning. And then when that night closes, after the day that the people have had, at the end of the day, 
God knows we are not righteous at our core. And he knows we make a lot of bad decisions, even good decisions with bad motivations. And he says, look, guys, at the end of the day, the smoke is still rising. I'm still here. Come talk to me. Come be with me. Come speak to me. It's personal. It's personal. It's personal. And some of you came in here today carrying junk. You just did. Something happened this week. Something happened between you and your friends. Something happened to you at work. Something you did that you're not proud of. Something happened. I'm telling you that today it's still personal. And the Holy Spirit is that smoke burning right inside of you. It's that offering right in your heart. He's speaking to you and saying, I'm still here. I haven't left you. I've run into folks who, especially near the end of their lives, as they, as they know that their time is short, will say, I don't know if I've done something that has separated me from God. I don't know if I've committed the unpardonable sin. I just feel such, I feel such amazing fear that I've, I've somehow left God and I keep trying to remind them, no, if there's any kind of conviction in your heart, the Holy Spirit's still present. If the Holy Spirit, Spirit's still present, God is still dwelling in the midst of you, calling you into that relationship, a personal, intimate, connected relationship. It's personal with God. Moses climbs up the mountain. Pastor Tim very eloquently talked to us about this a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't, if you haven't heard it, go back, look through the archives and check it out. It was worth, it will be worth your investment. Moses goes up the mountain. It's found in Exodus chapter 33. He asks God that he would see his face. As God is speaking to him, he says, Then he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. Catch the words. I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will be compassionate on whom I will be compassionate. But Moses said, But God said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and what? Live. So God said, you just, I'm sorry, sin has created a separation between us that, that makes it impossible for you to be alive and actually looking at me. We have had to be separated. But Moses, I'm telling you, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll let my goodness pass before you. Moses, I'm telling you, it's personal with me. It's connected with me. It's intimate with me. You are important to me. Tucks him in the cleft of the rock. Passes by, lets him see the back of him. And you remember what happened? Moses begins to glow. Moses begins, Moses becomes a light bulb that burns for the rest of his life. It's crazy. Just by looking at the back of God. By being so connected that his visage changes. So why the problem? What's, what is it that, that caused the separation illustrated on the mountain? Why is it that Moses couldn't see him? What's the problem? A loving, personal God in whose presence sin cannot dwell. That's the problem. An intimate, passionate lover of man in whose presence 
sin cannot dwell. Moses says, I just want to see your face. And God says, I'm sorry, buddy. I love you, but you can't. No one can look on me and live. That's why the separation became necessary. That's why there was a curtain that held God back in the corner of the room. That's why God went into the little cubicle at the back because there was no way that a person looking at God could survive. Let me ask you a question. Is that a prescribed rule? Did God say, you know how we're going to deal with the sin problem? We're going to make anybody who looks at me die. That's how we're going to deal with that. Is that what this was? Or is it a described reality that a holy God and a sinful state cannot dwell together? Do you see the problem? Do you see this is the solution that has to be, that this is the, the, the solution God has to come up with before he creates mankind. Because when he creates mankind, he sets all this mess in motion. And when he sets all this mess in motion, we know, he knows the sin problem is coming. They are going to turn their backs on me. We have to have an answer for that when it happens. When he created Lucifer, he knew that Lucifer would rebel because he gave him the power of choice. And in that rebellion, he knew that he had to have a solution for the day that that took place. Jeremiah and Lamentations describe it as the mercy of God being new every morning so that we are not consumed. So that we are not consumed. Because the Lord our God is... is a consuming fire. It is a description of his character, of his nature. That is what he is, who he is. Not who he decided to be because of sin. Not who he decided to be one day just because he thought, oh, this would be fun. He is, in fact, by nature, a consuming fire. The Lord of love, the creator of mankind, who wants a personal, intimate, connected relationship with you and me, is, is a consuming fire. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 33, there's a bit of description. There's a lot more here. Anytime you sing ellipses, I've been dropping things out. I just wanted to get to the core of what's being said in the discussion about our God, who is a consuming fire, The question is asked, who among us shall dwell in the consuming fire? Note that it says, in the consuming fire. Who can dwell in the consuming fire? Well, as Pastor Tim said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's who. And a hundred dollar bill in Tim's hands. Who can dwell in the midst of a consuming fire? And the answer comes back. He walks righteously. He who walks righteously. Does that include you? When you start looking at the words, he who walks righteously, do you start wondering if that's possible for you? Have you ever had a perfect day? When you did everything right and all day long, had perfect motivations for everything you did. When you didn't think evil of anyone, you knew 
or didn't knew. Didn't know. Or didn't knew, I guess. When, when, when a memory of some sinful event didn't come into your head, have you ever had that day? So no one can do that, right? He who walks righteously can dwell in the midst of a consuming fire. Hmm. Do you remember one of the other foundation pillars we laid, one of those foundation stones we laid a few weeks back? You are saved by grace through faith. And that saving is not of yourself. Not of works, unless you were wondering. Lest anyone should boast. You see, here's the deal. Even the righteousness comes from God. Who can dwell in the midst of a consuming fire? The one who accepts the covering of my righteousness. Who can dwell in the midst of a consuming fire? The one whose sin I have taken on myself. Whom I account as righteous. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. This, my friends, is an accounting term. Accountants, this is your verse. The, ver- the, the verb, the, the word here is actually referring to an entry on a ledger. It's an entry on a ledger. It's like you, you see the debt that the person has, you clear the debt, and in its place, you account righteousness as if it were. And once written in the ledger of God, it is descriptive. Get it? Get it? Get it? Once written in the ledger of God, it is descriptive of who you are from that day on. The only way that gets changed is by your hand, not his. Now I'm guaranteeing you, he's, he's got a plan for making some changes in your life. But the accounting in the ledger is set. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we get a glimpse of the picture. Same word. See the last line? Our God is a consuming fire. But catch the prior statement. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, what are we getting? We're getting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Once written in the ledger of God, it cannot be removed. God is the only one who could remove it if it were to be removed. And the person to whom he has given a choice to have it removed, that's you and I. A kingdom that cannot be shaken by any other thing Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear because our God is a consuming fire. Covered by His grace, 
who dwells in the midst of a consuming fire? The man who walks righteously. How does the man walk righteously? He's covered by his grace. And God then begins to work in his heart and change his steps. Get it? Our personal God, in whose presence sin cannot dwell, has children who have fallen into sin. It's personal with God. He wants a connected, intimate attachment to his people, not a distant, faraway relationship, but a connected, intimate relationship, personal, attached. And our sin has made it impossible for that to be literally true. Got it? And he lets that happen in spite of the fact that he knows he will be misunderstood. The distance between him and us, the distance between the outcomes that God desires and the outcomes that men choose is such that it will leave us questioning the character of God, not the choices of men. Because of the brokenness of of, of our own life, we look towards God and say, why don't you fix the things that are broken in our world? We look at places around the world and we say, God, can't you just do something? And the answer is, yes, I could. I could show up personally, but if I show up personally, every single person still clinging to their sins is gone. It's a price too big to pay for the moment. Do you get the problem? Is it, is it getting in? So what's the solution? Our God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. So here's the deal. I want to dwell in the midst of my people. Put me in a 16 by 16 by 16 cubicle. I'll shrink my presence into this glowing light so that I might be as close as possible. Oh, and by the way, when the nation comes to the moment of its need and they need fuller, more complete, when the world needs to understand more completely who I am, put me into two cells. Just two human cells. And as those cells begin to change and multiply, and as those cells begin to grow and become a zygote, and as those cells begin to differentiate and a little heartbeat starts to go, that'll be my heartbeat. It'll be really personal at that point. And as fingers start to grow on those hands, and as things begin to change for me, as I grow and grow and grow and develop in that human womb, as that happens, it becomes really personal for me. And then as I make my way out, into the, into the daylight and I begin to breathe the air that they all breathe and walk the streets that they all walk and feel the pressure of sin that they all feel. As all of those things come to pass, it becomes very personal to me. I will be among them as close as I possibly can be. And the veil that is wrapped around Christ and the, the encompassing of the messianic reality of God's presence 
He who is the exact representation of God in human flesh is wrapped for our protection in human flesh. Our God choosing an intimate, connected, personal relationship stands as we stand, takes on what we know is veiled from our presence by our own physical nature so that he might pass by and we might see the character of God. We might see the footsteps of God laying imprints in our own land. That we might hear him walking in the garden in the cool of the day for ourselves so that we can know he's not distant and unaware and unavailable, but that he knows every sin we struggle with. He knows the terrible, broken motivations of our heart. He knows what we relate to him, how we relate to him. He knows what we think, what we do, and how we feel. Because it's personal with God. It's personal. It always has been. It started when he knelt down and breathed to into our nostrils the breath of life. And it culminated when he broke the womb and breathed the air of our world into his own nostrils. It's personal. It's connected. It's intimate. It's real. It's tangible. It's God walking around in your body, feeling your problems, knowing the restrictions of living on this planet. It's God who has to be nursed by a human woman to survive, who has to be nurtured and cared for by two broken human beings to survive. It's God taking the greatest risk that God had ever took by taking on humanity's form. It's Jesus, the ultimate revelation that this has been personal with God from the beginning and that it's all been pointing to this culminating thing. It's personal because God is personal. Jesus stands one day outside a tomb. As far as we know, his best human friend is inside the tomb. Standing around him, the family of this beloved friend, whom he also loves. And they're weeping, their hearts are breaking. People from the village who know this man to be a good man have gathered. Many of them have followed to the tomb. And they look at Jesus and they say, man, this guy does amazing things. He couldn't come heal his own best friend. Come on. What's up? And Jesus wept. And Jesus wept because he felt the pain. He felt the pain that only God could feel. He felt the pain of not intervening. He felt the pain of a lack of intervention. Now, before you walk away from Lazarus, the same thing has happened to you. You've lost someone. You've been hurt in some way. You were born with some defect. Something has gone sideways in your own life. 
And you've cried out to God and said, why can't you fix this? Why don't you do something about this? Cure this brokenness within me. Heal my friend. Grant your blessings. We just prayed. We prayed probably for, what, 15 or 20 people. And as we did, every one of us in this room knows a person who's in that situation. And we were praying and our heart was going out for somebody we know who we felt personally about. And most often, we know the pain of God's lack of intervention. But we forget God's pain in that moment. Jesus is weeping because of the pain that his lack of intervention caused. Because it's personal. Because it's a relationship. And he could do something. But he chooses not to. And there's pain when you can do something that you don't do. For a better cause, for a more important reason, there's pain in the lack of intervention. Jesus knelt down in the garden knowing the really soon recognition, knowing in his heart that very soon he would be on a cross. And very soon he would take on the sins of mankind and very soon he would feel a separation from God that had not been true for all eternity. And he began to cry out to God. Is there any other way? Please let this cup pass from me. In the midst of this anguish, At the height of this pain, Jesus, praying more earnestly, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The kind of stress on the human body that causes those tiniest of blood vessels to begin to leach blood and let it pour out onto your skin with the sweat is a kind of anguish that I I venture to say no one in this room has ever felt. The pain that he felt was caused most by the reality of the separation that was coming. And his human body could barely take it. An angel came just before this passage Just before this, in verse 43, the Bible describes an angel coming to care for and comfort Jesus. Why? Because he was on death's door. Why? Because of the separation that was coming. Jesus climbs up on the cross. About three o'clock in the afternoon after suffering a great deal of personal torture and trauma, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You see, in that moment, there were two decisions being made. 
Jesus' decision to stay on the cross for us. And God's decision to pull away from Jesus because sin had become a part of his nature. Because he had taken my sin into his frame. And now there had to be separation or our God who is a consuming fire by being in his presence would have consumed him. Jesus felt it like you and I feel it. From the myopic perspective of the human felt only the separation and everything else was simply by faith that though he felt separated the character of God was such that he always longed for the closest possible relationship with you and me and him and that he was as close as he could safely be to the dying son of God. It's always been personal with God. It's still personal with God. There's a text in Second Corinthians has always been confusing to me. Partly because it's just, it's a larger part of an argument by Paul. And it just gets lost in the midst of the rest of the argument's confusion in my head. In Second Corinthians chapter 3, near the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul says, and now we, with unveiled faces. Now we with unveiled faces, looking on the face of God, like in a mirror, see the glory of God. And he explains further into the next chapter, And in verse 6 of the next chapter, he says, By God's power who said, Let there be light in the darkness. We all, by the power of his presence and his Holy Spirit, look into the face of God in Jesus Christ. And we are transformed by that glory into his light. There is a veil that separates for our protection. But there's a way through the veil. And that's Jesus Christ. God has made a way where it was impossible for us to find a way. That we might come into the presence of God. Look into his face. When we see Jesus, our Savior, personal, intimate, connected, human, giving his life for ours.
You can bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being willing to humble yourself and take on the nature of man. To become like us. To walk on our fields, our land. To feel the pressure that we feel from sin. To be surrounded by the evil that we feel in our planet. Take ultimately our sins upon yourself. So that we might see clearly your glory as it passes by. That we might see, like Moses, your glory, your righteousness, your mercy as it passes by in the place of Jesus. That we might have our faces unveiled like Moses when he went into the tabernacle with you to see you and speak to you face to face. Lord, challenge our hearts to be as personal, as connected, as intimate with you as you desire to be with us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.